1: You are listening to
0: Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org.
1: Before I begin my formal introduction to Professor Dershowitz, I want to pause for a moment and thank Drs. Mark and Eva Horn, who for the last four years have sponsored a lecture series at our synagogue that's held over Shabbat. And uh, as they say in our tradition, Ma'alin B'kodesh, the speakers continue to increase on their standard and we continue to increase its impact on our congregation. And on behalf of all of us, Eva and Mark, we want to say thank you for enabling us to have different pathways to Torah and enriching our souls and our minds and our congregation. Alan M. Dershowitz is a Brooklyn native who has been called the nation's most peripatetic peripatetic civil liberties lawyer, and one of its most distinguished defenders of individual rights. He's been called the best known criminal lawyer in the world, the top lawyer of last resort, America's most public Jewish defender, and Israel's single most visible defender, and the Jewish state's lead attorney in the court of public opinion. He is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, and he's a graduate of Brooklyn College and Yale Law School. Professor Dershowitz joined the Harvard Law School faculty at the age of 25 after clerking for Judge David Bazelon and Justice Arthur Goldberg. Professor Dershowitz has also published more than 1,000 articles in different magazines, newspapers, journals, and blogs, ranging from the New York Times uh, all the way to Haaretz and the Huffington Post. And he has number one bestseller, book called Chutzpah, and five other national bestsellers with more than one million of his books translated in many languages which have been sold worldwide. In 1983, on behalf of the Anti-Defamation League of Ivnei Elie Wiesel of Blessed Memory presented him with the William O. Douglas First Amendment Award for his compassionate, eloquent leadership and persistent advocacy in the struggle for civil and human rights. Professor Dershowitz has been awarded the Honorary Doctor of Laws degree by Yeshiva University, Brooklyn College, Syracuse University, Tel Aviv University, New York City College, Haifa University, and several other institutions of higher learning. Professor Dershowitz is married, has three children and two grandchildren, and it is a great honor to have him. But before he ascends the podium and we will begin a dialogue together with some questions about uh, what's going on in the world, I want to say something personal, if I may. And I think that this statement is um, even more potent in the wake of the loss of Shimon Peres and Elie Wiesel in the last few years, is that every time I find Israel, the Jewish people, or even the basic values that unite Israel and the Jewish people with Americans in the crosshairs of whatever it is of those who are angered against us, it is you, Professor Dershowitz, who stands up, who uses your voice and your incredible mind, your spirit and your passion, and are tireless and fierce and defending our people. You have never wavered one moment in that pursuit of looking after the interests of justice and the safety and security of the land of Israel. And that is an incredible, incredible blessing to all of us that gives me immense sense of pride whenever I see your name, whenever I see your face on the television, whenever I read your articles in the paper, to know that you are at the vanguard of representing and defending us and your voice is even more powerful and more potent with the loss of those two other voices who frankly in my estimation were the three voices that made the chorus of our defense and our values. And I pray that you inspire the next generation so that chorus will get even larger and stronger and sing in harmony for all of those values and those ethics that you continue to inspire us on. May God bless you and keep you for many years because we need you. And I am honored to present in dialogue with me today, Professor Alan Dershowitz. Thank you Thank you. So, I am um, Is this on? Okay. So, in Jewish custom, I have four questions to ask you. Of course. It's not that night, but uh, I have four questions to ask you, and a couple of uh, liberties I might ask and follow up questions along those lines. But I think the first question I want to ask you from 30,000 feet professor is what was it in your background that made you decide to devote so much of your energies and your passion and your time writing in particular to the defense of the Jewish people and civil liberties and to advocacy for Israel?
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to this absolutely gorgeous congregation uh, and to help celebrate the bat mitzvah of two wonderful wonderful uh, young women. I look up and I see the skylight and I know that, like everything good, it comes from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I'm also thrilled to be in a congregation that has among its members the Gasman family, uh, which, uh, whose father Barry, who's here with me today, goes back to Borough Park with me. I've known Barry for 73 years. We started elementary school together in Yeshiva Eitz Chaim, and um, I, I just love your congregation. I love your service. I don't know how many of you noticed the Chazan, who was brilliant, the Chazan's homage to Leonard Cohen, uh, who died uh, this week uh, uh, singing uh, hallelujah. Leonard Cohen was our great secular Chazan, uh, having written uh, melodies from Unetana uh who by fire, having written his most recent uh, memory just before he died, his kind of farewell, uh, a requiem uh, 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 about Hineni. Uh, He sang it with the chazen from the Montreal uh, shul. So uh, the answer to your question really resides in what I've just said. I grew up in this kind of a community. I grew up in Borough Park um, with um, modern Orthodox Jews. I snuck away very often and went to the conservative shul that Rabbi Silverman and David Kusevitsky were part of. We grew up in a very cantorial neighborhood. We had Moshe Kusevitsky, David Kusevitsky, great rabbis, great uh, chazonim. I was not a terrific student in yeshiva. Um, Barry can attest to that. I got into a great deal of trouble all the time. And my orthodox rabbi called me in at the end of my high school and said to me, Avi, my name was Avi at the time, my mother made me take a real name when I went to college, but uh, said, Avi, what are we gonna do with you? You've got a good mouth on you, but a Yiddish cup you do not have. (laughs) This this is the orthodox rabbi. He said to me, I can think of two things you can do where you have to use your mouth a lot, but not your brain. He said, one, you could be a lawyer. (laughs) Wait, it gets better. He said, or two, you could be a conservative rabbi. <laughs> he, he couldn't even bring himself to pronounce the word reform, and for him there was no greater insult than to be a rabbi outside of the Orthodox tradition. I wasn't smart enough to be a rabbi, so I became a lawyer. But I was steeped, steeped in uh, Jewish values. and. For the first, I would say, 15 years of my career at Harvard and in Washington, I didn't see the need to defend Jewish values because they weren't at risk. Everybody loved Israel. Uh, Israel was not under attack. The Jewish people were safe and secure. And it really was in the beginning of the 1970s when people like Daniel Berrigan and Noam Chomsky and the hard left, uh, I was a person of the left, of the center left, but when the hard left began to turn against Israel, I said, look, I've always devoted my life to defending the underdog. I went down south during the civil rights period. I defended many uh, black uh, African-Americans on death row, many others. I said, now it's my time to listen to Hillel. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am for myself alone, what am I? And it was really in reaction to the turning of the left against Israel that I turned much of my attention to um, defending uh, Israel against improper charges. And fort- unfortunately, it's been a full time job. Uh, and it's getting even more full time with the growth of the BDS movement on college campuses, this new concept called intersectionality, which is a euphemism for anti Semitism. It says that all oppression comes from one place, and that one place tends to be Israel, Zionism. Uh, you know, it's interesting because. What we're seeing is the growth both of the hard right and the hard left all over the world. And the one thing the hard right and the hard left have in common is a hatred for Israel, a hatred for America, a hatred for Western values, a hatred for democracy, and often a hatred for Jews. So I think I'm going to be busy for a long time to come, tragically. I'd love
1: to retire. But as long as there's bigotry and hatred, I can't retire. So, first of all, we can't afford a few to retire. Uh, the great um, irony is that my rabbis told me I could become a professor at Harvard. Uh, <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> think, of how, think of how different the world would be if you were at Harvard and I was here. It would be very
1: interesting. Well, it, it doesn't feel so bad anymore. No. <laughs> um, actually, based on the last comments you made, if that's okay. And I want to talk to you for a minute about... Uh, University life and what it is to be Jewish. I uh, I go to about five or six campuses a year where the majority of our students attend. Those have high Jewish population rates, so Syracuse and Maryland and Tulane and Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, and there is um, there are two narratives that live there: one of a fear and one of complacency, and everything is fine. So my question is, is twofold. Is the pervasive anti-Israel attitudes on university campuses a sign of the future, that's part one, or is this really just a tempest in the teapot that Jewish people, have given oxygen towards since there are, let's say, 4,000 degree-granting university, and to date, no university has divested from Israel. Mm -hmm. And really, in the scheme of numbers of over four million college professors, there are a minuscule amount that are anti-Israel. So talk to us about those two narratives that live on a campus and where you fall on it.
0: Okay, and they're they're both essentially uh, correct. BDS has not succeeded and will not succeed on any American college campus. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you a story. So the faculty of Hampshire College, a small liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts, voted a couple of years ago to divest from Israel. My son happened to be an alum of that school and told me about it, and I called the president. And I said, I just want to be very clear with you. If you divest from Israel, we will divest from Hampshire. And we will start a campaign of every alum, every parent, uh, and we will stop contributing to any school that divests from Israel. And he basically pleaded with me not to do it, and he promised he would get the faculty vote reversed, and he did. And that threat continues, and we've made it clear to colleges all over the country that alumni support is essential. The vast majority of alumni support Israel. Look, the second part of your question is right. Only perhaps between 10 and 20%, depending on the campus, of faculty and students on any given major campus are virulently anti-Israel. Uh, 80% are complacent and another you know, 10 or so, uh, or maybe 20% are very, very pro-Israel. Uh, um, uh, a story. So I was invited to speak at the University of California at Irvine, the same place that uh, the ambassador to Israel was booed and not permitted to speak. And I got up to speak and I was booed too, but coming from Brooklyn I just shouted over the boos <laughs> and I wouldn't let them uh, shut me down. Uh, But I started my talk, it was about this size, maybe a little bigger, about 1,000 people, and I could see on the right side were groups of students wearing the green of the Palestinian cause, and on the other side were a group about the same size wearing the blue and the white and the kippah. And so I said, before I begin my talk, I want to ask one question of each of the two groups. I want to ask first the pro-Israel students, how many of you would accept a peaceful, non-terrorist Palestine living side by side with Israel. Every hand immediately went up without a second's pause. Then I turned to the pro-Palestinian group and said how many of you would be willing to accept a nation state of the Jewish people in peace, no settlements, no expansions, uh, living side by side. They mumbled among each other, not a single hand went up. The chancellor of the university whispered and said you can sit down now, you've won the debate Uh, because it's become clear that this isn't pro-Israel versus pro-Palestine, it's pro-Israel versus anti-Israel. That the Palestine group was more interested in there not being a nation state of the Jewish people than in there being a Palestinian state. And that's been the history from the very beginning. When Hajj al-Husseini appeared before the uh, Peel Commission in 1937, he said there is no such thing as the Palestinian people, we don't want a state, we just don't want there to be a Jewish state. And I have said over and over again, the day the Palestinian leadership wants there to be a Palestinian state more than they want there not to be a nation state for the Jewish people, the conditions for a two-state solution will have been achieved. The problem on college campuses is not with the anti-Israel professors. The problem on college campuses is with the pro-Israel professors. These are people who love Israel in their heart, in their soul, in their neshama, in their family, in their synagogues, but they don't have the guts to speak out in favor of Israel on the campus. Their advocacy for Israel is limited to friendly audiences. And they simply won't take the chance that they will be attacked if they are perceived as being pro-Israel. Every time I speak at a university campuses, and I too speak at many, I actually try to pick campuses where there is hostility more than where there is a friendly audience, because I want to be in the belly of the beast, I want to be able to change minds. Whenever I speak, I get calls that day or the next day and they always are the same call. They generally tend to be in a little bit of a whisper, thank you, thank you Alan for speaking up on behalf of Israel. Nobody speaks up on behalf of Israel on this campus. I said, well, what about you? They say, well, we're, we're afraid our student evaluations will go down and they will. Our ability to get into honor groups will be diminished and it will. Uh, our chance to be promoted or to be recruited by other colleges will be affected, and it will. But the job of a professor with tenure, the job of a professor with tenure is to speak one's mind. And I am more disappointed. There are exceptions to this, of course, on many colleges. I, there are exceptions on many colleges, but on too many colleges, Harvard among them, Pro-Israel professors refuse to speak out because they know there will be consequences for that. So we're winning the fight against BDS in terms of results. But the goal of BDS is not to get divestment. They know they won't get that. The goal of BDS is to poison the minds of the future leaders of America. You know, when I taught at Harvard freshman seminars and I taught uh, first-year law students, I would look at it, I'd say 150 students. They would be terrified, young people, hoping that they maybe will finish law school. I would look around and say, that's the future president of the United States. That's the future chief justice. That's the future editor of the New York Times. That's the future head of Goldman Sachs. I know, because in 50 years, I've seen all those people come through my classes. And they have become the future leaders. And that's why we have to look to universities as predictors of the future. And we can't let them win this debate and this struggle for the minds and souls of Jewish young and other young leaders. That's why at Harvard every year we send 75 future student leaders, mostly non-Jews, to Israel. I usually go with them, we arrange for them to meet the Prime Minister, the Chief Justice, we get them involved in a lot of legal issues. But I want to ask you all a little trivial pursuit question, you can shout out an answer. Guess where I take them first. Guess the first place I take them and I'll give you a hint. It's not the Kotel and it's not the uh, museum of the Holocaust. Where do you think I take them first? Not Starbucks, huh? (laughs) I'll tell you where I take them. I take them to Ramallah. Why do I take them to Ramallah? Because they see Ramallah, a beautiful city as beautiful as Jerusalem. Not a single Israeli soldier, not a single Israeli policeman, not a single sign that there is an occupation. And they say to themselves, this is the West Bank. This is not what we've been hearing. This is not what we've been seeing. And they view everything else that they've been told before about Israel skeptically. Sure, then I take them to Bethlehem. Sure, then I take them to Hebron which of course is in today's Sedra. And they see a different situation. They see it's a mixed picture, but at least they know that the propaganda they've been getting, that Israel is an apartheid country, that it, conform, that it performs genocide on the West Bank. Then I introduce them to the justice of the Supreme Court, one of whom is an Arab. Um, I introduce them to you know Israeli culture and I see Israeli and West Bank Palestinians playing in the same symphony, uh, conducted by Berenboim, uh, and they they see the reality, the complex reality, and they all come back wanting to go back to Israel. I had an African-American woman asking me to get her a job in the justice ministry. She wants to live there for a year. Uh, It's just a remarkable thing. As you know, when you take your congregants to Israel, there's nothing like it. I'm going there next week. I will be at the ceremony when Israel gets its F-35s which will maintain its qualitative military superiority for years to come. But there are problems and there are issues in Israel. But we have to fight back on college campus. We have to use all of our power, all of our influence, all of our voices to make sure the students understand the nuance and the complexity. The one thing you can't discuss on college campuses today with any degree of nuance and intellectual honesty is Israel, remember the ad they used to have which had an egg and then it's so the egg getting scrambled and it said this is your mind, this is your mind on drugs. I often think about that with very smart people, colleagues of mine at Harvard, this is their brain but when you mention Israel, it gets scrambled. Everything turns wrong, everything that's right is wrong. Take for example, I'll give you one example. There's a famous academic concept that's going all over the world today and it's called pinkwashing written by a Jewish lesbian woman at one of the city colleges of New York in an article in the New York Times. Here's the thesis. Sure, Israel is the best country in the Middle East and one of the best countries in the world for gay rights, for lesbian rights, for transgender rights, but that's all a cover. The only reason Israel is good for gays is to cover up how bad it is for the Palestinians. It's whitewashing, but because it's about gays, we're gonna call it pinkwashing. And that's believed today. In many places, it's the, parad- it's the paradigmatic form of anti Semitism. What is anti Semitism? It says that anything Jews do that appears to be good must be badly motivated. So if Jews give tzedakah, oh, there's an inherent reason behind that. If Jews contribute to political campaigns, if they build museums and hospitals, there must be bad reasons. And if they treat gays properly, there must be a bad reason for it. And yet, you hear this on so many college campuses and you hear it from Jewish professors and you hear it from Israeli professors and then they make the argument by ethnic identity. Ah, a Jew, an Israeli concedes that Israel is an apartheid genocidal country, it must be true.
1: It is such an absurd argument, but it's an argument that's made all the time. So I I have locked horns with Peter Beinart on this issue before. And uh, I took him on in particular two years ago when he encouraged rabbis from the Bima not to talk about Israel, if you recall, in the New York Times. Well, but he wants them to talk about Israel if they are willing to Cor- talk in his way. Correct. He and just what, wants to censor should, them if they tell the truth. That, that's correct. And he was worried about how that would play out. Mm-hmm. And when I tell all young rabbis today when, I, when I'm in their midst, whether it be through APAC or JTS or well, By the, I the way, to interrupt you. He
0: just wrote an article condemning rabbis we're not using the pulpit to condemn Donald Trump. So he wants to he wants to tell the rabbis what to say. He just doesn't want them to say things that he doesn't
1: want them to say. He is he is, he is a flaming hypocrite. Well, the the point that uh, I'm not saying yes or no. Well, I'm, but I'm yes. That's okay. God bless you. The point that I, uh, that I contend with him on and that I say to these young rabbis on a regular basis is the most important ingredient of your rabbinate is courage. Of course. And what you're demonstrating from these professors and asking is the same thing because I think the world is thirsty for courage and we seem to have stripped that down. Right. I'm going to change gears for a minute. I don't know if you, you heard or not, but uh, there was a big election on Tuesday. I heard about it. Yeah. I heard about it. Um, and I'm curious to know... Uh, two or three parts of this election from you and your your wisdom. One, how um, will this election have implications, if at all, for the state of Israel in which ways? Um, secondly, do you think there was more... It's hard for me to articulate this one. Do you think the divide in the country was done on political platform or on value platform? And is there a difference or not? And um, thirdly, um, is there... A to right some of the wrongs that cause deep pain by Donald Trump in values that uh, seem to be a unifier Mm -hmm. for most of the Jewish world. Okay, first, the great news about every
0: American election is that it doesn't generally have a profound impact on America's relationship to Israel. It's not like England, where if the Labor Party were to win with Corbyn, it would change Israel's policy, it's not like what's going on in France today. Uh, It's not like what went on in the last Spanish election or the Norwegian elections. Those were all referenda in the end on Israel. In America, we're thankful that Israel is a bipartisan issue. You know, One president may be better than another. The first Bush was not good for Israel. The second Bush was very good for Israel. Um, But it's always a matter of degree and nuance. Uh, Generally, all administrations are positive toward Israel's right to defend itself. One could be very critical of the Obama administration. On the Iran deal, I have been critical, but in terms of Israel's ability to defend itself against terrorism, the Obama administration has been very good. It is supplying them the F-35. So it's always gonna be a matter of degree. Uh, I see this election as very dangerous for Israel in a different way. It re- and it doesn't matter who won the election. It represents a dangerous global trend. And let me just say a parenthesis here. I don't want to brag about this, but I predicted the outcome of this election. I wrote a book with a unique title called Electile Dysfunction, A Guide for Unaroused Voters. And in it, I predicted with absolute precision the result. I said, one is gonna win the popular, one is gonna win the electoral. This is gonna be the closest election since 2000, I, said, and I wrote this when Hillary Clinton was ahead by 12 percentage points. I said this is like Brexit, and the reason I'm making this prediction and the reason I'm gonna be right is Tip O'Neill is now an anachronism when he said all politics is local. Today, politics is global. And what we're seeing is a trend all over the world toward populist candidates, toward candidates exactly like Donald Trump, no surprise. He got tremendous congratulations from the Prime Minister of Hungary, from the potentially next leader of France, Marina Le Pen, who today in the New York Times announced that the Trump election marks the end of the 20th century. And what she meant is very profound. I will put it in slightly different terms. Since 1945, the end of the Shoah, we've had a moratorium on extreme nationalism, on anti-Semitism on the hard, hard right, because we saw what it brought us with Hitler and the Nazis. That moratorium is ending now. And we're seeing, I just came back with my family from a trip to the places where my family came from in Galicia in Poland. Uh, I gave a speech at the Jagiellonian University in, in, in Krakow and I visited uh, Hungary and Slovakia and Austria and Poland and what I saw was extremely disturbing. What I saw was the return of extreme nationalism and it always takes the form of the election of a populist leader. Sometimes a non-ideological populist leader and I wrote about that in my book and I predicted that because of global trends, we would see Brexit, I predicted Brexit exactly right too, that Brexit would win despite the polls, that Trump would do very, very well. I didn't know whether he'd win or lose, but I knew it would be an extremely, extremely close election. And so I worry about the growth of extremism on both sides. We're seeing it on the right and we're seeing it on the left. And whenever you get a strong nationalist right wing, you get a counteraction on the left. And today's op-ed by Senator Sanders in the New York Times is another symbol of that. He thinks, essentially, that the reason that the Democrats lost the election is they weren't left enough. He's just dead wrong. Sanders would have carried four states. Uh, Americans don't like socialism. They don't trust large governmental bureaucracies. The, the future of the Democratic Party is not to move leftist Uh, By the way, these people call themselves progressives, but they're the ones on college campus who are the repressives. They're the ones who want trigger warnings, safe spaces, no more microaggressions, for them, but not for us. Jews and Christian Zionists don't have safe spaces on college campuses today. They don't get trigger warnings. Only the hard left gets the trigger warnings and the safe spaces and the uh, denial of microaggressions. Take, for example, the organization Black Lives Matter. I have devoted my life to civil rights and to making sure that black lives matter, but I will have nothing to do with that organization as long as it continues to have in its platform one country, the nation state of the Jewish people, singled out as genocidal and apartheid. Genocidal, the word was invented to describe what happened to six million Jews. How dare people, and by the way, that was put in the platform by a Jewish member of Black Lives Matter but supported by the board and I will have nothing to do with that organization or with any groups on the hard left even though I consider myself center left as long as they manifest this kind of intolerance and antisemitism and we have to fight back. I've urged Jewish students today on college campuses are told if they want to belong to environmental groups they have to renounce Israel. If they want to belong to gay rights groups, renounce Israel. If they want to belong to feminist groups, reject Israel. No! We'll have to start our own organizations. We'll have to start organizations involving civil rights for blacks that don't call Israel genocidal. We have to start environmental groups that base the environmental support on the Torah that says even when you capture a foreign country, you don't kill the fruit trees. You leave the environment uh, pristine. Uh, We can create organizations that don't have to be Jewish. They just have to not be anti-Semitic. And no Jewish kid on a college campus should ever be made to have to choose between Ahavach Yisrael, a love for Israel, and a love for progressive, reasonable values, either right or left. I want to see the debate return to the days when good, reasonable conservatives could debate with good, reasonable liberals. That's not the future. The future is all to right, Debating with hard left. We saw what that happened when that happened in the 1920s. In the 1920s, all of Europe was divided between communist parties and fascist parties, and the result was horrible. I don't want to see that happen in America. I want to see both parties move to the center. That's why my next book, next book is called Why I Left the Left But Couldn't Join the Right The Case for the Vibrant Center. I want to see us return to the center, and Jews always thrive at the center. You know, Jews and Israel have always been caught between the extremes of the black and the red. The black of fascism the red of communism. Jews were seduced by communism, many, in the 1920s and 1930s because conditions were so bad. And then we got stabbed in the back when the jeans became Trotsky's and, uh, and led the campaign to kill Jews. Just like we're seeing many Jews on the hard left be the most anti-Semitic. Jill Stein uh, runs on a platform of BDS. Um, you know, it's interesting that in America, I could be opposing the first two Jews ever to run for president, uh, Sanders and Jill
1: Stein, and I was proud to vote against both of them. But by the way, if, uh, if this legal thing doesn't work out, you can come up with book titles for people. you <laughs> are very creative. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: let's talk a little bit Oh, of, by the way, b- before we get to that, I,
0: another book title, my last book is today's Cedra, of course, it's called Abraham, the world's first but certainly not last Jewish lawyer. And it makes the point that Avraham was not only the first Ivri, the first Jew, the first Hebrew, he was also the first Zionist. He went up to uh, Israel, and certainly the first lawyer. And please all come to Shul next week and listen to Vayera, where Abraham becomes the first criminal defense lawyer and rebukes God, shakes his finger at him and says, Chalila l'cha, ha kala aretz, How dare you, God, the judge of all the world will not yourself do justice? And he invented the concept in arguing for the sinners of Saddam that better 10 guilty go free than even one innocent be wrongly convicted. So he is an inspiration to all of us criminal defense lawyers who get berated for defending the guilty. We point to Abraham and say, hey, no one more guilty than the sinners of Saddam. And look
1: at what a great job Abraham did on their behalf that's what it is to be Jewish, right? To look after the other. Let's talk about the next two months of the uh, Obama administration which um, leaves us with uh, a very um, rich tapestry, um, a nuanced approach of what it is to have Israel advocacy. Uh, Close relationships with J Street. Uh, But as you said, and as many in Israel have said, some of the strongest relationship militarily that has existed in our history, the F-35 that came through, eight packages, and so on, no love lost for the Prime Minister, and some clear snubbing. My question to you is, is a focused one, which is, what do you think President Obama will do, and what do you think President Obama should do? when it comes to the United Nations in the next two months and bringing the issue of Israel to the forefront? Okay, it's a great question. I'm gonna be speaking at the UN this
0: Wednesday at at four o'clock and one of the points I'm gonna make is how dangerous it would be for the French resolution before the Security Council to be enacted. The French resolution would really turn the peace process over to the United Nations. And President Obama through his surrogates has threatened not to veto that resolution which would be a major change in American foreign policy. American foreign policy for the last 40 years has been to keep the Israel issue away from the UN. Started in 1975 with racism, Zionism, and uh, Senator Moynihan standing up and saying, we will not be bound by this. And the policy has been the same ever since. And President Obama, who is now the most dangerous man in the world, why? Because every president during the last two months of their presidency, if it's an eight year term, is the most dangerous person in the world because it's the only time a president is not constrained by checks and balances or by political accountability, he can do whatever he wants, and I hope he does not uh, change American policy unilaterally, It would be utterly undemocratic to do so. The Senate overwhelmingly, 82 senators wrote to him and said don't do it. The House of Representatives, even a higher percentage would tell him don't do it. The American public would tell him not to do it. Many in his own staff are telling him not to do it. I had already approached Hillary Clinton and urged her if she were to have been elected to tell Obama please do not tie my hands because you can't undo a Security Council resolution. And if President Obama tries to tie the hands of his successor, I don't think Donald Trump will have as much influence on uh, President Obama in saying don't tie my hands, But I hope the president doesn't do it. And we all have an obligation here to try to stop that from happening. Now, J Street has been silent on this. J Street claims to be pro-Israel. Hard to find much evidence of it on its website. If you read J Street, it's all counter, counter, counter. On the Iran deal, virtually everybody in Israel was opposed to the Iran deal, particularly the Sunset provision of the Iran deal, which ends it in eight years. J Street was in favor of it. Um, J Street did everything that Obama wanted him to do. And I'm talking to somebody who voted for Obama twice, and I'm a strong liberal Democrat, but always critical of whoever my president is. Just like when I was growing up, I was critical of my rabbi. You know, the job of a Jew is to be critical, but loving, and supportive, and loyal, but critical to Jews, three opinions, to Israelis, 12 newspapers, so. <laughs> Don't don't expect uh, agreement on these issues. When I speak about Israel on college campuses, I make the 80% case. I don't try to make the 100% case because there are no two people who agree 100% on anything that's happening in Israel. On the Iran deal, I'm about to write a piece to Donald Trump saying you've said you're gonna tear up the Iran deal, mistake, don't do that. There's a much better way. Enforce it fully. The Iran deal starts with the following statement and nobody seems to understand that but go today after services and check Google and you read the prologue to the Iranian statement. I wrote a book about it called the case against the Iran deal and the prologue starts by saying Iran acknowledges that it will never under any circumstances seek to obtain or develop nuclear weapons. Never. Never doesn't mean eight years. It doesn't mean 12 years. It doesn't mean 20 years. All I want President-elect Trump to do, and I want Congress to do it too, is to say we've read the Iran deal. We think the prologue is an inherent central part of the deal. And it is American foreign policy that Iran will never, under any circumstances, be permitted to develop nuclear weapons. Why is that so important? because the reality is Iran will never be allowed to develop nuclear weapons. There isn't a single Prime Minister of Israel. I don't care who it is, whether it be the extreme Labor Party, the extreme left, any Prime Minister of Israel, certainly not Herzog, certainly not Sipi Livni, who would sit by and allow Iran, which has sworn to destroy Israel, to develop a nuclear arsenal. It will not happen. Israel will be obliged to take military action to stop that from happening. That will be a terrible price that Israel will have to pay, particularly since Russia has now been playing footsie with Iran and helping them to develop defense techniques against a possible Israel attack. So the Iran deal will not produce peace. It will be much more likely to produce the need for military action. That's why it's important for American foreign policy to be clear and unequivocal that it is not only Israel's policy but America's policy that Iran will never, ever be entitled to develop nuclear weapons, certainly as long as this regime is in place, this regime which has sworn to destroy Israel. What country in the world would allow another country that is a neighboring country that has promised to destroy, to develop nuclear weapons? Look at what the United States did when Khrushchev tried to put nuclear weapons in Cuba. Khrushchev wasn't calling for the destruction of the United States, Cuba wasn't calling for the destruction of the United States, but we said we will not permit a single nuclear weapon to be 90 miles away from the coast of Florida. And Israel has the same policy and it must have the same policy. Any country would have that policy and it applies a double standard to Israel to say you're not permitted, to prevent a country that has threatened to destroy you from developing a nuclear arsenal. So I'm hoping that America, in the interim, in the next two very dangerous, very difficult months, will do the right thing, both in terms of the UN and in terms of the Iran
1: deal. I want to ask a closing question. Um, We we live in a world that um, we govern from our armchairs with, uh, with remote controls, and we see something horrible, and we flip the channel. And rarely do we find the courage, which you were talking about, to come and do something about it, to, uh, as Heschel said, pray with our feet. So I want to ask you for two or three concrete things that you would suggest that we, as American people who I think overwhelmingly agree with every syllable you uttered today, what we can do to be advocates for Israel, advocates for change, and to continue to ensure that we are safe and protected as Jews and as Americans.
0: Okay, well, first of all, I think our position in America is much stronger than it was in the 1930s. Look, our grandparents couldn't do very much to prevent the Shoah. They tried their best, but they didn't have the power, they didn't have the influence. We do. There are efforts, by the way, to diminish our influence. If you look at the efforts that Sanders and others are making, uh, to move the Democratic Party to become a kind of socialist party which eschews any reliance on Wall Street and corporations and ending financial contributions to campaigns, that would reduce the influence of uh, Jews in, in, in governance. Um, and you know, um, I counted twice this morning, probably, uh, I was probably off by one or two, but how many times did we say and how many times a week do we recite the prayer God will give the Jewish people Oz strength and only then will the Jewish people have peace we learn the lesson of the Shoah that we need power, we need O's and we need to use our power you know when people say to us that Jews have too much power our answer has to be no we don't have enough power that we have too much fin- no we don't have enough when we have too much chutzpah we don't have enough chutzpah the reality is, we must use all of our power. We must use our economic power, our political power, our academic power, our moral influences, because you know we learned the lesson in the Shoah. When Martin Buba wrote a letter to Mahatma Gandhi asking him to support the Jewish people at a time that they are being destroyed by the Nazis, Buber wrote back. A, 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 a Gandhi wrote back a foolish letter saying, no, the Jews have the morally superior position. Let them lie down in front of the Nazi tanks the way we lie down, the, Br- the, Brit- the Indians in front of the British tanks, and the tanks will stop. And Buber wrote back, essentially, he didn't use this language, he was more polite. You jerk. We're talking about Nazis now, not the British. The British might stop their tanks. The Nazis would just roll over us. Uh, we thought, and many of our rabbis and intellectual leaders thought, that because we were on the right side of morality during the Second World War, we would prevail, and I think we learned our lesson, and the result has been the establishment of one of the strongest armies in the world uh, in Israel and a nuclear uh, country and it 's a tragedy that we need it. Look, we all believe in the prophecy that hopefully someday we will be able to turn our swords into plowshares and can you imagine what the peace dividend would be if Israel were able to turn its nuclear weapons into nuclear medicine and able to turn its brilliance in cyber warfare into brilliance in curing uh, diseases? The, the, the benefit to the world would be enormous, but tragically Israel's first priority today is military defense against uh, enemies. And tragically in the United States and all over the world, Jews need to be defended. Thank God we have a country in Israel That opens the door to any Jew, whether it be from the Ukraine, or from the suburbs of Paris, or from Lithuania, that needs to have a place of asylum, and people condemn the law of return saying it's racist, no. Maybe the Chinese law of return is racist, maybe the Palestinian law of return. Many countries in the world, I think something like 40 of them, have comparable laws of return, but only Israel has proved that it needs a law of return, because Jews are still still Endangered in so many parts of the world, and growing worse in places like Hungary and uh, other places. In Poland now, it is going to be a crime for anybody to say that Polish people were complicit in the Shoah. A man named Jan Gross, who is an eminent historian, Princeton, and also uh, in uh, Poland, is getting his reward removed by the Polish government and is being threatened with criminal prosecution because he wrote a book called Neighbors, which proved that Polish people burned a church full of Jews that they surrounded. And of course in Kielce, even after the war was over, dozens of Jews were murdered in cold blood. Um, and you know, Jews have to tell the truth and the world has to tell the truth. There were many great Poles. Jan Karski is one of the bravest people in the world. I'm trying to establish a Jan Karski lecture at Harvard Law School in honor of this great Catholic lawyer who risked his life to come to America and tell us the story of the Shoah. And there were many good people in Poland who helped hide Jews, but there were many bad ones, including many of the leaders of the Catholic Church who were complicit in some of the atrocities. And the truth and nuance must prevail. So my point is we have to fight back and we have to continue to consider ourselves uh, yes, this is the best of times. We are strong, we're powerful, we're wealthy, we're successful, but we also live in dangerous uh, times. And um, our obligation is not to remain silent. Um, you know, I'm often asked, am I an optimist or a pessimist? And I think of the Israeli definition. Uh, in Israel, a pessimist is somebody who says, things are so bad, or they're so bad, they couldn't possibly get worse. And an optimist is somebody who says, yes, they can. Uh, I'm not that kind of an optimist. I do think that we have destiny in our hands, that we no longer can make the excuse that we are powerless. If we fail to exercise our power, that's our choice. If we remain passive in the face of danger, that's our choice. And we should choose life, and we should choose truth, and we should choose to fight back against causes of injustice and we should do it within the Jewish tradition. We should never forget that we were strangers in a land and we have to treat strangers well. We have to resist efforts to stigmatize other people. I'm so proud of the Anti-Defamation League when it stands up for Muslims and it stands up for Mexican Americans and when it also stands up for Jews. Um, you know, you don't want to be the kind of Jew who only stands up for others, and you don't want to be the kind of Jew who only stands up for Jews. And that's why Hillel's admonition, it may not needly is so powerful and resonates through the centuries. And I really feel optimistic when I see a Shabbos morning, a beautiful day, everybody could be out playing golf, and people are here celebrating the future with two wonderful uh, bat mitzvah uh, girls uh, who just said the the leaning and the haftorah and the Dvar Torah so beautifully. When I see two young girls like that, I am so optimistic about the future. So, may you go from strength to strength, and may you continue to do great things for America, for the world, and for Kalal Yisrael. Thank you so much. Uh,
1: I have two, two quick things to say in closing, and, and that is, um, I know that you're a member of is that right? So we have an honorary membership here in the Brooklyn Dome for your 12th today. And just want you to know you're always welcome in this shul. And I, I want to tell you that I became a husset of yours, I think it was in 1994, when I watched you debate Alan Keyes. And you finished the debate uh, with a quote from Voltaire that has inspired me, I think, every day of my life. Because you might have, re- you know, repeated the quote, but you live the quote. And that quote is... I despise all of your views, and I'll fight for my dying day for your right to have them. And that embodies what you are. You are a person who believes in a sense of equality, and in using a voice. And you have used that voice your whole life, and empowered others to do the same. And we pray that God bless you, so you keep making the change that you've done in the world with that voice. It's a blessing to all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Much love.